has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have a car stopped in We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. You know, folks, if you watch the 48 Hours uh, interviews of uh, the Gonsalves family on Saturday night, it was quite a sad thing to, to watch the mom and the dad uh, talk about their daughter. And, you know, it was their daughter, Kaylee Gonzalez. And there was really no brand new revelations. We heard a lot about this uh, probably seven, eight months ago. However, it was really good to hear from the parents and also to see how they were doing, how that they have, they're still surviving. And their take on this case, one of the most horrific cases probably in collegiate history across the nation, just a horrific crime. However, presenting this and seeing that these are two survivors, two people that are clearly going to make it through this whole ordeal, of course, it's going to be very difficult and they won't be the same people. However, they're going to make it through. Um, and a big issue, of course, the new revelations in the Idaho case as cameras in the courtroom were argued. Um, lawyers on both sides of the upcoming trial of Idaho suspect Brian Koberger have asked that TV cameras be restricted in court. Uh, in late August, Koberger's defense team asked Lata County District Judge John Judge to bar cameras from the courtroom, claiming the coverage would violate the accused's constitutional rights. Uh, prosecuting attorney Bill Thompson has now responded by citing his own concerns about a media presence during the trial and requested the judge at the very least remove cameras during the testimony of a number of young and vulnerable witnesses. Some of the witnesses, including the two surviving Idaho housemates, college students, who lived with three of the four victims who were brutally murdered last November during a 4 a.m. 4 a.m. home invasion. Uh, in addition to, and at least partially as a result, the, the substantial traditional and social media coverage, certain witnesses have already been subjected to threats and harassment, including physical intrusions directed at not only the witnesses and other university co-eds, but their extended family and friends, District Attorney Thompson noted. Uh, at Koberger's arraignment in May, the judge entered not guilty pleas on the defendant's behalf to four counts of first-degree murder and a burglary charge for the deaths of Madison Mogan, Ethan Chapin, Zaina Canodal, and Kaylee Gonsalves. Uh, following his arrest, Koberger said he's looking forward to being exonerated. Prosecutors, on the other hand, alleged that investigators found his DNA again on a knife sheath that was found next to or underneath the body of Madison Mogan. Uh, 
During a late uh, June hearing, uh, the judge said cameras in Moscow, Idaho, where the trial will be held, need to show a wide shot of the courtroom and not focus exclusively on the defendant, Koberger. Uh, Koberger's defense attorney, Jay Loxton, cited the judge's warning during his filing to remove cameras, arguing subsequent coverage of the allegations against Koberger is biasing potential area jurors against him. Uh, you know, one of my biggest concerns about cameras in the courtroom, of course, is that you want to make sure that the defendant, who this ultimately is about, especially in this case where it's such high stakes, where it is a death penalty case, we want to make sure that the defendant gets a fair trial. And certain things about cameras in the courtroom alter, alter many things. It alters the way that people act, the way witnesses act, the way jurors act, the way the judge acts, the way defense counsel acts, the way the defendant acts, and a way ultimately the prosecutor as well as witnesses act. So it's a it's a double-edged sword. Uh, those of us old enough, and I'm not claiming everyone that's listening to this show is old enough watching the O.J. Simpson case, realized that cameras in the courtroom, that was, of course, I believe it was in the early 90s, affected a lot of things, specifically the way the trial was handled, the way that people uh, acted, the way, of course, the prosecution acted every day the nightly news would open the news with what happened in the case that day. So again, very, very uh, important. This is a huge decision. I think there is lots of pressure on this judge, Judge John Judge, to, to uh, allow cameras in the courtroom, but with certain restrictions. I want to play some of this footage here. The way the bed was set up is what she was trapped. She was trapped trapped that's how the mother of idaho murder victim kaylee gonsalves describes how her daughter died in a new interview about the case as prosecutors and defense attorneys asked to close an upcoming hearing to the public so this notion that the state and the defense can get together to keep cameras out is ill-founded let's just put it that way thanks for joining us here on law and crime i'm anjanette levy Kaylee Gonsalves' parents have revealed new details they say they learned from the coroner about how their daughter died. Kaylee Gonsalves. You know, folks, this was reported as new details, but however, this was reported very early in the investigation as the coroner uh, gave this information to the Gonsalves family in uh, telling them insider information of what occurred and what happened and how their own daughter. Kaylee uh, was killed. Salvis, her best friend, Maddie Mogan, their roommate, Xana Kernodal, and Kernodal's boyfriend, Ethan Chapin, were all stabbed to death in a house near the University of Idaho campus last November. The case has captured the attention of people around the world. Brian Koberger, a Washington State University PhD student, has pleaded not guilty to the murders. In an episode of 48 Hours, Kaylee Gonsalves' parents said the county coroner told them that Maddie Mogan was killed first, Kaylee was killed second. She was sleeping in the bed with her best friend. Yeah, there's evidence to show that she awakened and tried to get out of that situation. The new information comes as Brian Koberger is due back in court this week. 
His lawyers are asking Judge John Judge to dismiss the indictment. They claim the grand jurors were biased and that mistakes were made in the process. But mystery still surrounds some of the specific claims because the motion is sealed. Now the defense and the prosecution have filed paperwork agreeing to close the hearing to the public. But there's one problem with that, according to First Amendment lawyer Jack Greiner. Well, I think that the idea that the defense and the state can uh, get together and close a hearing just by their own agreement is just simply not the case. There are, You know, folks, don't forget that our system of law, our system of prosecution and defense is an adversarial system where the prosecution is trying to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the charges and the defense is trying to create doubt, to create enough doubt that maybe one or more of the jurors will vote not to convict. And that's what adversarial means. There are other stakeholders, there are other people with interest, including the families who is, from my reading, there's a desire that the, uh, the, the cameras be in the courtroom by at least some families of the victims. The other stakeholder obviously is the public and the public is represented by the media. Greiner has argued on behalf of media outlets in courts for years. In fact, he was part of a coalition that included law and crime during a high-profile trial in Ohio last year. To close a courtroom, the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press says the judge must hold a hearing on the need for secrecy and allow the media and others to argue against closure. It's a rule from the U.S. Supreme Court. Closing courtrooms is rare in criminal cases. It is a uh, huge outlier, the idea of closing the courtroom entirely, that the public can't come in for any purpose, is uh, separate and apart from having cameras in the courtroom, that there has to be a compelling need for the closure and that there are no less restrictive means. So it's up to the state and the defense, I guess, since they both want the, the hearing closed, to come up to, to articulate a compelling need for the closure. There's nothing in the stipulated motion that articulates a compelling need to close this proceeding, and there's certainly no suggestion of any less restrictive means. So the You know, folks, do you think that a defendant in a trial can get a more fair trial, a fairer trial without cameras in the courtroom or shine a light on it, total transparency and have cameras in the courtroom. So if you think he, the trial will be fairer without cameras in the courtroom, put a one in the chat. And if you think total transparency and a fair trial will be much more fair with cameras in the courtroom, put a two in the chat. I'd just like to see how most of you feel about this. My feelings are, is that I sort of think that cameras not in the courtroom allows for the um, defendant to get a fairer trial because of some of those reasons I enumerated before that many people that are the actors in this case, the witnesses, the jurors, the judge, the defense attorney, the prosecutors, I think they sort of feel that they're playing to the camera instead of just doing their jobs. Um, 
So many of you folks want those cameras in the courtroom. And again, is is that because of, and I'm not, is that because of selfish reasons that you want to see this case so bad that you want the cameras in the courtroom? Or you are you thinking intellectually and in that if someone from my family was on trial, I perhaps wouldn't want the cameras in the courtroom. Jennifer Bossett, she says she wants cameras in the courtroom, but with restrictions. That's another great point because they don't want the camera to always be focused on the defendant because didn't wouldn't that sort of prejudice well the people watching it aren't the ones that are making the decisions though so the judge has to decide and make very specific rules for the media and we also know how the media can twist things and it's funny how during this age of social media and YouTube content creators that the mainstream media, you know, ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MSNBC, all these different broadcast stations complain about YouTube content creators. They're unhappy with them. And it, it's sort of funny because the mainstream media sort of complains about uh, social media the way the public complains about mainstream media. So it's sort of been flipped a little bit but i think again my preference is i think that the trial can be more fair if there are not cameras in the courtroom let's go back to the um uh to sharing the screen here motion on its face is really defective and if the court were to close this proceeding entirely without a hearing, uh, that would be automatically subject to appellate review uh, that the media coalition, I, I'm sure, would go to the uh, appellate level in Idaho and seek what would be a, a writ of mandamus to ensure that the court be open uh, during these proceedings. The issue of having cameras in the courtroom for the trial is a separate issue. Media outlets, including Law and Crime, have argued to keep cameras in the courtroom during the trial. Reiner has argued on behalf of many media outlets many times to keep cameras in the courtroom. Public ought to know about what's happening at a uh, mass murder, a trial of an alleged mass murder, and the more the public knows, the better for everybody involved. Judge Judge has not yet made a decision on the issue of cameras in the courtroom. Whether he will allow this week's hearing to be closed to the public is not yet clear. So, folks, interesting. Again, so Judge, uh, it's, such a, it's such a great name for a judge, Judge Judge. He has not yet decided on whether he's going to allow it or not. But it would be interesting to see that um, his decision will be so, if he makes a decision anti to what, the First Amendment people think there will, of course, be litigation in regards to uh, in regards to allowing the cameras in the courtroom, and so this decision, he, he, whatever he decides to make, if he decides to allow them or not to allow them, there will be some pushback, and specifically if he uh, disallows cameras in the courtroom, I think there's going to be a huge pushback 
by the um, by the media because they obviously this is a huge huge case for the media and they want to be heard and they want to have the freedom of the press inside this courtroom. Recently, Alex Murdoch, the list of high-profile televised murder trials goes on. But will that list soon include the man accused of murdering four University of Idaho students in the middle of the night? Prosecutors and the defense team for Brian Koberger today argued against cameras in the courtroom during a hearing. But the families of at least two of the four victims Tell News Nation the trial should be televised, should be as public as possible. News Nation senior national correspondent Brian Enton is live outside the courthouse in Idaho. All right, break down what each of the sides were saying here, what the families are arguing, and when will the judge make a decision? Yeah, perhaps what was the most interesting today, uh, Elizabeth, in this hearing just ended behind me about 15 minutes ago, is what the judge said. The judge uh, over the case, Judge Judge is his name, uh, doesn't seem to be much of a fan of the media. Uh, he says he's concerned that cameras in the courtroom lead to a circus-like atmosphere, that it's a spectacle. He actually used the O.J. Simpson trial as an example uh, in court just now, saying that it totally spun out of control because of the cameras in the courtroom. Uh, and he said he's less concerned about uh, the reporters who are actually inside the courtroom taking notes and the photographers in the courtroom. And he's more uh, concerned about social media uh, and people who manipulate the images and sort of try to tell their own story of what really happened. A lawyer who represents the media uh, spoke to the judge. Uh Anita Martin in the chat. Um, I just wanted to uh, pull up your comments. I think it's great. I think mainstream media is put on notice that the public wants truth and transparency. You know, Anita, you are so right. However, there was a lot of untruth and untransparency during this whole case. In fact, there was a lot of sensationalism that was put out there by the media, a lot of things that weren't true, um, that were put out there as absolute truth. So those are one of the, the things, you know, the, if you go back in this case, the food truck, the guy Adam, all of these different things that the media put out there as, as truth, the, the fact that Brian Koberger had been in the Mad Greek restaurant that was reported by People magazine. Some broadcast stations put that out there as absolute truth. That turned out to be absolutely untrue. So, yes, so transparency, but the transparency has to be the truth or else then we're just like the National Enquirer or just, you know, something, someone putting something out there that is absolutely not the truth. And that doesn't help either side. Uh, and said, look, the concern is if you don't have cameras, that then those people on the outside, uh, the people on YouTube uh, and the people who manipulate things can manipulate it even more. It's sort of like they're functioning in a vacuum without any. How about the mainstream media manipulates things? I love when they blame YouTube, but I think we all as the public know that they do it worse than anyone else. And again, I've seen, of course, I've seen things on YouTube. I've seen content creators just get outrageously uh, sensationalistic. But again, who invented it? The mainstream media.
real way of knowing what happened inside the courtroom. Responsible news consumers uh, have, have a right to know uh, exactly what's happening and to see the trial uh, in real time. You brought up the families. Uh, two of the families, uh, the Mogans and the Gonzalez's, have both said publicly that they want the cameras. They feel like there's already been too much secrecy with this entire trial all along, and they want it to be open and public and transparent. I spoke to Steve Gonzalez, Kaylee Gonzalez's father, uh, about what he thought. Take a listen. The community needs to determine who this individual is. You cannot ask for the community to do the death penalty without their vision, without their support, without their understanding of all the aspects of the case. It's more than just the jury members. It's the community. It's a message for everybody to understand in Idaho. This is how we work. To me, the courtroom is truth in action. So why do we hide that? So the judge uh, did not make a decision today, Elizabeth. It's unclear exactly when he will make a decision. He says he's going to go back, review what both sides have said, review what the uh, attorney representing the media coalition had to say today, uh, and then we'll issue a decision later. Elizabeth? Did, uh, hey, Brian, did the families have a chance to make their feelings clear to the judge? That's a really... You know, folks, how the families feel about this should not determine the judge's decision. I, I respect the hell out of Steve Gonsalves and all the families of these victims. However, what's the most important thing is that, and, and of course, in the long run, in our system, and I have to repeat this all the time, you can believe uh, Brian Koberger is 100% guilty. However, it's so important that he get a fair trial. Because if this trial goes through and some wrong judicial decisions are made or some wrong prosecutorial decisions are made, it could overturn the potential conviction. So the judge taking into consideration how the family feels, yes, it's, it's warm and fuzzy and it's very sensitive, but it really has nothing to do with jurisprudence. And his job as a judge, which is to make the proper decisions by the letter of the law, not by his feelings or the feelings of the families. Unfortunately, it may sound cold, but that happens to be the truth. And I don't know why uh, this reporter is saying, has he pulled the, what does that have to do with anything? You know, it doesn't. He must make a decision. That's why he has the, the name judge. And I don't mean his last name. I mean, he is the judge. And the decision he makes will determine whether or not this case goes, if it does go through to a guilty conviction, then hopefully he did everything correctly because almost without, without a doubt, a case of this magnitude, especially since it's a death penalty case, no matter how straightforward and how amazing the judge makes decisions and how correct they are, there will undoubtedly be an appeal if there's a conviction, almost 100%. So uh, the judge cannot take into consideration. He has to take into consideration the law. And that is his only consideration at this point. 
interesting question. And when I talked to Steve Gonzalez, he said that's the reason that he was talking to me. And that's the reason they actually issued the statement, because they felt like that was their only way to communicate to the judge and the prosecution. They say they weren't asked what they thought about any of this, but they're hoping by talking to the media, uh, at least they'll be part of the conversation. I find that really difficult to believe they're victims yeah. in this case um, and that nobody would take into yeah. account how they feel. Uh, and by the way, the spectacle, the least amount of spectacles to have a single camera in the courtroom so everybody doesn't have to run in and out of there and, you know, create a lot of made up stuff about what they think is happening yeah. in there. Oh, thanks so much. for. <laughs> it, just, it, sort of, it just sort of makes me laugh when the media says made up stuff as if they don't do it themselves. They, you know, they invented it and now they don't like it that some folks on social media are doing it and they're getting oh they could make things up folks don't get me wrong the family will be heard from but not from the judge the person or persons who they'll let know they'll let it be known how they feel will be the prosecutor they'll let the prosecutor know uh this is how we feel about this we feel there should be uh cameras in the courtroom a and that will dictate, you know, well, already the prosecutor doesn't want cameras in the courtroom. So he's sort of on the same side as the defense. However, the press, the journalists, they will fight this tooth and nail because they want those cameras to be in that courtroom. I'm going to play a little bit of the hearing, the actual live hearing. Were it only yep. the kind of cameras used to show the workings on the House floor on C-SPAN? Um, I may be showing the age, but they might have better cameras now. But when I was well, I'm sure, younger, I, it was just I, this camera like way over there. Yeah, well, that, that's that's the point. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just, I made me think about that, is just plant a, a uh, camera up there if everybody can just see what's happening from the back of the courtroom. Maybe that can satisfy everybody just partly. That that, that was kind of my suggestion. That was my suggestion. I, I feel like somebody's going to throw a tomato at me, but that I thought might be uh, a way to kind of give give a little uh, and just kind of protect what we're trying to protect. I've never seen anything very sensational on C-SPAN. Yeah, and that's literally what I was thinking. Yeah, that's Although Newt Gingrich got pretty close to. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Okay, are we going to Mr. Rudley now? Ms. Olson gets at the end of that, and then I'll uh, go back to the parties. Go ahead. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, as we previously discussed, the decision of whether to allow cameras um, in the courtroom is discretionary for the court. The state outlined our concerns with allowing cameras in our responsive brief and in our June 6 briefing. Primarily, those um, concerns are preserving the right to a fair and impartial trial for all the parties, protecting sensitive witnesses who will testify at hearings um, and trial in this case, and safeguarding um, evidence, which is the graphic nature. We agree that the media plays an important role in the court process, and we appreciate in their briefing 
the measures that they identify to address some of our concerns uh, for protecting vulnerable witnesses or uh, evidence, which is of a graphic nature that they've done in previous cases. However, our contention, um, our contention is that the safest way and best way to address all of these concerns is to prohibit cameras in the courtroom or in the alternative prohibit cameras when sensitive or vulnerable witnesses are testifying or there's evidence being viewed that's of a graphic nature. And I'll send your questions. Thank you. Okay. You know, folks, uh, basically what he was saying, which is was very uh, intelligent, was that um, minus an outright ban of cameras in the courtroom, how about not showing highly sensitive witnesses that may not want to be outed in this case by the defense or prosecution? So how about at that time some stipulations and someone in the chat before put um, how about cameras in the courtroom? It was Miss Bossert. I forget your first name, but that was a very great, uh, excellent comment. How about cameras in the courtroom, but with restrictions? That makes a lot of sense. And specifically when they talk about, well, let's not have cameras. Let's have a camera in the courtroom that every single news station can get the feed of and not multiple, multiple cameras that are panning around the courtroom, showing different shots, zooming in on the face of the prosecutor, zooming in on the face of the defendant, zooming in on the witnesses, having it, one single camera, perhaps in the back of the courtroom, that perhaps would be the most fair way uh, to have cameras in the courtroom, but yet also to protect the rights of sensitive witnesses. Thank you, Your Honor. And I think, you know, legally, we're where we were three months ago with respect to what the courts, the rule the court has to consider in terms of whether to continue to allow cameras in the courtroom, and that's Idaho Court um, Administrative Rule 45. And I think, Your Honor, when we read through that rule, it really addresses the concerns that the parties have raised to this court about what the court's discretion is, about what it can, um, how it can direct cameras where they're to be in the courtroom, all of those things. That it can restrict uh, camera coverage when there is a particularly sensitive witness. And I think, Your Honor, what you saw in the declarations that we submitted, the declaration of Rebecca Boone and the declaration of Grace Wong, is that these are journalists who are experienced in covering court cases, and in covering court cases where there are cameras, both video cameras and still cameras, and following the court's admonitions about what can be covered and what can't be covered. And I think, particularly, Your Honor, with respect to Ms. Boone's declaration, and Ms. Boone, who is a graduate of the University of Idaho's journalism program, who continues to be an advisor to that program, and who certainly would have not only the best interests of her employer at heart, but she understands this community. I mean, her experience has been that when you have these pool uh, cameras, those still and video, and when you allow camera coverage to the extent that you can, it better serves the public and it helps ameliorate the, the kind of um, media, or media scrum is probably not the, the term that my clients would want to use, but that's sort of that big gap. You know, 
it's almost like you would have to have a director directing when the camera can be used, turned on, whatever you want to say, from the court, from representing both sides, representing the prosecution and representing the defense, and of course, over overseen by the judge. And do they decide hour by hour, minute by minute, when the camera can be turned on, when it gets turned off? Again, you heard both sides say, sensitive witnesses we don't need the camera on when there's a sensitive witness testifying and my thing with all of this is that the most important thing is to have this case this trial stand up as conducted correctly in a manner of law so that it does not get overturned on appeal if there is a conviction gaggle of journalists who accumulate outside of the courtroom uh, when there is no opportunity to be inside the courtroom, when you can't, when you don't get the opportunity to have that full procedure. So I think the court can use Idaho Court Administrative Rule 45 and craft a solution that continues to allow the journalists who are working hard to cover this case to be able to do so in a way that both allows them to provide really a first-hand account of what's going on. And again, Your Honor, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of that firsthand video account as well because they're just we're just in this day and age where people are used to seeing things firsthand there's cameras everywhere um to be able to really have great confidence in the proceedings i think it's important for the court to allow some sort of in courtroom camera coverage of the proceedings people are going to need to be able to see firsthand for themselves um how the evidence is presented uh, how the um, you know they want to see the rulings in Portland. They can learn a lot from that in a way that they can't learn from people who then are in the courtroom and they go set up outside and and they talk about what happened. And so I think you know that's a good reason to continue the policy uh, that the court has had. And then I think Your Honor, with, with all due respect to Mr. Lawson, I just don't think there are the violations of the things that the court said at the outset of the June 27th hearing. I, I was not here. I read about it in um, Mr. the attachment that Mr. Lawson made to his initial, or the reference Mr. Lawson made to his initial pleading in this round. And and my reading of that, Your Honor, is in a, actually in a Fox News story, is that the is that the court said, and of course the court said it, so I'm sure the court's memory of it is the, is the best. But that the court uh, made a comment that the court should. Of course, I'm having a hard time. Back up. That's what I. That's what I. That's one of the things I said. Yeah. Okay. It, it was just focusing, focusing right. too much in particular areas, and so I was, I was just cautioning uh, the media to step back, and they have, they have pushed the envelope. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you that. Okay. Well, Your Honor, I think, I think that the, what the media heard on that occasion was reported by Fox News. You know, folks, one of the things, especially with the decision that's going to be made, uh, hopefully shortly by Judge Judge, is there is legal precedent for this. There is case law for this. He's not going to come out of left field and say, I just don't like cameras, they're banned. He'd never get away with that because as soon as he makes that decision, the broadcast media is going to slap an injunction, they're going to slap a lawsuit and sue to overturn his decision and potentially hold things up. Uh, that shouldn't be the breadth and, and uh, weight of his decision, but he has to use 
case law to decide. As I said, he, he doesn't, he has stated that he doesn't want this trial, this case to become a circus like he has seen with other cases. Sue Mena, thank you for the $2 super sticker. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. Uh, and folks, if you want to uh, contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels and also a YouTube channel member memberships with five different levels. And we appreciate all our YouTube channel members, friends, fans, subs, and they're the ones in the green font in the chat. And we really appreciate every single thing they do. You know, folks, this um, this whole issue of cameras in the courtroom, and I know most of you guys, most of you folks, of course, that follow real crime, true crime, you want cameras in the courtroom because you want to know what the heck is going on in this case. And I don't blame you. Of course you want to know what's going on. And does it give, is it more, does it give the defendant more of a fair trial or less of a fair trial with cameras in the courtroom? Most can argue that it, it's transparent. It makes, it makes the government produce their case in a fair and judicious way. And it also allows people to see the way that the courts work. And in that way, yes, the transparency, we, maybe we overuse that word in uh, these days, transparency. But my only concern, as I said, is that it, it sometimes does create a circus. It sometimes make people, makes people behave uh, in, a, in a way that they don't, wouldn't ordinarily act. You see the way people act just when someone puts a camera on them. They, they can't act normally. Pauline Buckles, the O.J. Simpson trial has tainted every high-profile case since 1993. Yeah, I think that's a good example of how cameras in the courtroom did somehow taint the case and sort of made everyone involved in that case, including the judge, act in a different manner. Um, moving on to another, and we'll stay with this, but moving on to another issue in this case was the FBI... Um, has been called on the carpet in this case a couple of times. Once for um, with the DNA and creating a uh, an investigative genetic genealogy, creating a family tree that the defense has asked to see. You know, when you're in high school and, they, and you're doing a math problem, and your teacher says, "Show the work and hand it in," so I know that you know what you're doing. Well, in essence, that's what the defense wants to see. They want to see the FBI show their work, how they arrived at the genetic genealogical tree, which wound up again identifying Brian Koberger's father in a comparison against the touch DNA on the knife sheath that they obtained the sample, the DNA uh, exemplar, from some garbage thrown out at the home in Pennsylvania. So that's the defense wanted that. And very recently, the FBI visited a witness, a excuse me, a defense witness, and sort of grilled her. And they, they called her into the courtroom because 
the defense didn't like the idea that the FBI interviewed a witness that they intended to use in the trial. And here's this person being grilled in, in the court. Make comparisons of two or more people and how they relate to each other and share DNA. A genetic genealogy expert for accused murderer Brian Koberger claims she received a visit from the FBI after testifying in court for him. That has Koberger's lawyers asking questions. Thanks for joining us here on Law and Crime. I'm Anjanette Levy. Gabriela Vargas is one of several experts in genetic genealogy that Brian Koberger's lawyers have hired to advise them. Koberger's lawyers want to see the genetic genealogy information the FBI used to ID their client as a suspect. The state says it's a tip and they shouldn't have to turn it over. This is just a short portion of Vargas's testimony from about two weeks ago. Those matches that are revealed are only matches that are, have been opted out. Something in Vargas's testimony piqued the interests of the FBI after the prosecutors heard she may have been reneging on some of her testimony or a sworn declaration that she signed. Koberger's lead attorney explained what happened from her vantage point. Last night, she was visited by two FBI agents and interrogated about her testimony and the timing of the declaration. Ann Taylor told Judge John Judge that she would file a motion regarding what happens to witnesses after they testify in court. Blaytaw County Prosecutor Bill Thompson explained why he asked the FBI to investigate after hearing Vargas might be questioning some of her own testimony. When we heard of that, we, I reached out to investigators and said, can we find out what's going on? And the FBI indeed undertook the investigation. Um, and other reports are that um, Ms. Vargas claims that some of what was in her declaration, she inadvertently agreed to her side without fully reading it. Um, we're documenting that so we can propose it to Ms. Taylor. And, uh, now Thompson has told the court he will not cross-examine the witnesses that Taylor called to testify about genetic genealogy. But there are questions about whether the FBI agents visiting Vargas was proper. I spoke with former FBI agent Tracy Walder about it. Well, it's not something I typically hear about FBI agents going in and visiting a witness um, after that they have delivered testimony. However, I think a lot of that lies with perception, right? How Mrs. Vargas felt um, during that discussion. And I would hope um, that copious amounts of notes were being taken. And I would hope that the FBI has a very good reason. But the, the interesting thing that I see here is, is the FBI is not the dominant investigatory team um, in the Koberger case. So I'm surprised um, that they were the ones that followed up with this, but it could be simply because she's in a, in a different location and it's easy. You know, folks, it's very common um, for the defense to send investigators to interview prosecution witnesses. So in essence, this was the reverse. This was the prosecution sending, well, in this case, the FBI to interview a defense witness and it's sort of the the defense is yelling dirty pool and uh i just wanted to make that point that it is very common
for the defense to interview prosecution witnesses prior to the trial. So the old expression, what's good for the goose is good for the candor, as they say. Well, apparently not. Easier. Bill Thompson said this was about information he received after the hearing, but prosecutors had reserved the right to cross-examine some of the witnesses at a later date. Now they say, as I mentioned, that they are not going to do so, which also struck Tracy Walder as odd. Look, she is well-respected in her field. Certainly she's testified at trials before, but if you have two agents showing up at your front door, I think anyone is going to have a defensive reaction to that, right? Um, because they're not there um, for good news typically. And so I do think it would have been much better had her, had Ann Taylor, had someone from the defense team accompanying her to a local FBI office for this interview to take place. Because I think that just would have been much more comfortable all around versus someone basically surprising you um, in your home. And there's a reason that we do that, right? Is to catch people off of their guard. Um, and so I think that might be some of the issue at play here. And I hate to go back to perception because it's so nebulous, but I think that's part of the problem. FBI agents do not typically record interviews or wear body-worn cameras. It's not clear whether that happened in this case or whether the agents simply took notes about the meeting with Vargas. The prosecution has filed information related to that under seal with the court so the public cannot see it. Brian Koberger has pleaded not guilty to the murders of Maddie Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, Ethan Chapin, and Zana Kernodal last November. A trial date has not yet been set. Koberger remains in the Lataw County Jail where he is held without bail. His attorneys are asking the court to dismiss the indictment charging him with murder. They also plan to ask the judge to strike the death penalty from the case. Well, you know, folks, I think the, the chances that they um, that the defense, excuse me, that the judge would would strike the grand jury indictment are uh, uh, practically zero. I mean, they would have to show that there was just gross negligent, that there was bias, all of those things. And I don't see that. Um, uh, I don't see that happening at all. But there's been a lot of, of course, legal maneuvers in this case. Just a couple of weeks ago, they came up with uh, the fact that uh, Brian Koberger has an alibi for this, that he was nowhere near 11, uh, 1122 King Road at the time of these homicides, and that he frequently just drives around aimlessly during the nighttime. That was uh, what they were talking about. And um, I think that, um, that that's, uh, <laughs> that's a strange alibi because if you can't prove an alibi, if there's no one that can back up an alibi, how is it even an alibi? So those are the things. Uh, they, they, they suggested a possible alibi. Let's watch a little bit of their possible alibi. In a last-minute move to present an alibi, Attorneys for Brian Koberger are now suggesting the man accused of murdering four University of Idaho students in November may not have been at the crime scene when the killings took place. In court documents filed Tuesday, the defense writes evidence corroborating Mr. Koberger being at a location other than the King Road address will be disclosed. And while the defense did not provide further detail about where Koberger may have been, they say his whereabouts may come to light at a trial through cross-examination and expert witness testimony. Part of the investigation, the discovery of a white Hyundai Elantra that was seen at the crime scene the morning of the murders. 
How y'all doing today? It's the same make and model Koberger owns and police stopped him in weeks before his arrest. Do me a favor and don't follow too close, okay? This is just the latest attempt to cast doubts on the state's case and the investigation after prosecutors said Koberger's DNA was a statistical match to DNA found on a knife sheet at the crime scene. Last month, the defense suggested that evidence may have been planted, writing, the state's argument assumes the DNA on the sheet was placed there by Mr. Koberger and not someone else during an investigation that spans hundreds of members of law enforcement and apparently at least one lab that the state refuses to name. Not guilty of the crime of murder. The filing, reminiscent of another high-profile trial in 1995 when O.J. Simpson's defense claimed a blood-stained glove was planted at their client's home. The jury in that case famously acquitted Simpson. In May, a not guilty plea was entered by the judge on Kohlberger's behalf. He faces four counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. With this trial set to start in October, the University of Idaho now says it will wait until then to demolish the house where the quadruple killings occurred. Well, folks, we know now that the trial is not going to start in October. You know, I I always say when on police off the cuff real crime stories, you know, so much is made of um, circumstantial evidence. Oh, that's circumstantial. And anyone that knows anything about evidence or law enforcement, circumstantial evidence, which means for which inferences may be drawn. That's what circumstantial evidence means. Circumstantial evidence is powerful evidence when there's a lot of it. And you always hear me say on this show, connect the dots. What does that mean? There's not just one piece of evidence. If there was one piece of evidence, if there was just the knife sheath with Brian Koberger's touch DNA, and there's another argument, they and even C.C. Moore said, you would rather, of course, have DNA uh taken from biological fluids, blood, semen, uh, urine, uh, skin, you know, these, the, well, this touch DNA could potentially be from skin cells. So apparently not as powerful, again, as other types, because they can argue, well, touch DNA can be transferred. Okay, let's say that's true. But how do you also explain that his car was in the vicinity 11, of 1122 King Road, which is the homicide scene, on 12 prior occasions, and make it 13 when he comes back the morning of the homicides at about 9 o'clock in the morning, number 13. How is it? How is all of that coincidental? And again, is any of that a slam dunk? Absolutely not. Can a defense attorney poke holes in any of the things I just said? You bet. And their job is to create doubt, you know. And can they create doubt? Yes, they can create doubt. How about his car being caught on video cameras pulling into the back of 1122 King Road? How about his car being caught driving at a high rate of speed along the roads going towards his, his school, Washington State? How about on all the other occasions it was caught? And, and apparently... And again, we have no information of this from the prosecution, but there potentially could be, and, and we'll learn about this during the trial, the digital evidence by way of him 
either his phone hitting onto the Wi-Fi system of 1122 King Road or potentially having some type of interaction digitally with Madison Mogan. And again, the prosecution is saying nothing about that. Family members of the Gonzalez family, Gonzalez family, have said that that's a potentiality. But we have not been told that. But what if, what if that is... What if that is a distinct possibility? So all of these other th other things that, again, we can all say that's circumstantial evidence. And what everyone keeps bringing up, and again, um, we did a whole show on it one time with uh, the, the journalist Howard Bloom, who writes for a magazine called Air Supply. Um, he and others, other journalists, have dwelled upon the fact that there's no motive there's no motive in this case. Surprise, surprise. Prosecution does not have to prove motive. And you know that, Mr. Journalist. But you keep repeating it as if it is something that they have to prove. And you're told over and over and over again, they do not have to prove motive. But yet, everyone, of course, loves motive. If you don't know the motive, you can't possibly prove this person guilty. And there's no truth to that whatsoever, that there's no, there's no motive. And, you know, folks, I just always want to mention, we lose sight when doing this case. I try not to ever lose sight of it, of who the actual victims are in this case. And four beautiful kids on November 13th of 2022 lost their lives during this case. And it's, of course, Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Canodal, and Madison Mogan. And we never, ever, ever want to lose sight of that. And um, that's what this case is about. And we talk about the evidence. We talk about the defendant. We talk about cameras in the courtroom. We talk about the FBI. We talk about interviewing witnesses. But ultimately, the most important thing in this case are those four individuals that you see up on the screen right there, that you see up on the screen right there. Great friends that all lived at 1122 King Road. And this person, Brian Koberger, again, he's innocent to proven guilty. And I'll say that till the cows come home. But when I don't say it, everyone says, you just say it like he's guilty. You know something? The other night when we heard Steve Gonsalves on 48 Hours, if you watch the interview on 48 Hours, and that's Steve and, and his wife, Christy. And he was asked the question, is there any possibility that Brian Koberger is not the person that did this? And to my great surprise, he said, yes, there is. He may not be guilty. And I was sort of shocked at that. And then they asked the same exact question to his wife, Christy, and she said, no way, he's guilty. He's 100% guilty. So two people in the same family. And is Steve Gonsalves, does he really feel that? Or is he preparing himself for the potentiality that Brian Koberger could be found not guilty? And then what? Then what would happen? You know, As a parent, we all know what happens in our justice system. But as a parent, 
How would you deal with that? How could you come back from that? The decision comes after the victim's families asked for the house to be preserved. I don't want somebody in the court case say, well, I really wish we could be in the house right now. And this new filing is just the latest attempt from Koberger's attorneys to outline a potential defense. But with a gag order still in place, we may not know many of the details of a possible alibi or defense strategy until the trial starts in three months. Guys. All right, Gotti, thank you. Let's bring in NBC News legal analyst Danny Savalos. Danny, good morning to you. Okay, so Koberger's team is saying maybe he was not actually at the house when the murders were committed. We've been talking about this trial for a long time. Why is this just coming to light now? What's the plan here? Because the rules require them, the defense, to file what's called a notice of alibi. In other words, the rules say that, look, generally a defendant doesn't have to say anything. They can just wait for trial. But when it comes to an alibi defense, especially this started in the 1920s, people started perceiving alibis as like this last-minute, pull-it-out-of-your-pocket yeah. defense. And so out of fairness, the court started saying, well, look, if you're going to say you were somewhere else, you at least have to give the state enough advance notice so they can go out and investigate. If you say you were at your book club meeting, well, then the state should be able to go out and get ring doorbell tape, mm -hmm. talk to the other people at your book club meeting, and generally investigate your claim that you were somewhere else. So this is an exception to the rule and a controversial exception to the rule that the defense doesn't need to put on any evidence. And the Supreme Court has said that this is okay with the Fifth Amendment. It doesn't violate the Constitution. This is an exception. You can require a defense to put in this evidence, your notice of alibi. And under the rules in Idaho, this was the time that they had to do it. Mm -hmm. To be clear, so far, the defense has not offered any evidence or any witness that would support this alibi theory. So what, what could the strategy be here from a defense perspective? Danny? The way I read between the lines of their filing is this, and this is just my take. They're saying, uh, Judge, we don't have alibi witnesses yet, but we don't want to give up the opportunity to present an alibi defense because the rules of procedure in Idaho and in many other jurisdictions are you either disclose it or you lose it. If you don't disclose a witness at the time you're supposed to, then you may be precluded from calling that witness at trial. So the defense here appears to be trying to hedge their bets. They're saying, look, we may call an alibi. We may have an alibi defense, but we don't have it yet. Yeah. So, judge, don't preclude us. Uh, and also, judge, by the way, the Idaho rules allow an exception for the defendant to testify. That means that even if they don't put on any alibi defense or notify them as they're supposed to, they could, in theory, call the defendant and he could come up with an alibi defense all by himself. Mm -hmm. All right, Danny, thank you so much for your insight. We appreciate it. Danny, mm -hmm. thanks. So, folks, that's uh, that's really interesting that, uh, you know, I don't think there's, abs you know, I think there's zero chance that Brian Koberger will testify on it. I think really that would have to, we all watched Alec Murdoch testify, right? And it was, uh, it was a disaster. Uh, even a person like a, an attorney, he thought that he was so smart that uh, he was going to be able to, um, he was going to be able to trick everybody, you know, and uh, we saw that he couldn't trick everybody, that that wasn't even a possibility, you know, uh, that he's going to trick someone on the stand. And, and we, as I said, if Alec Murdoch couldn't trick someone with his knowledge of the law and his ability to ask questions and to also to lie, because believe it, he had some experience lying, that's for sure. Then I cannot see there's be any chance that uh, 
Brian Koberger would, would testify at all. Convicted of the murders of Maddie Mogan, Kayla Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin in Moscow last November. According to the probable cause affidavit and other court documents, a K-bar knife sheath was found under Maddie Mogan's body on her bed, and testing revealed Koberger's DNA was on the sheath. Law enforcement used genetic genealogy to locate a possible suspect and came up with a child related to Michael Koberger. That's Brian's father. According to the probable cause affidavit, detectives believe the four students were murdered sometime between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. The affidavit claims a white Hyundai Elantra was seen in the area of the King Road home beginning around 3.26 a.m. Around 4 a.m., investigators say Zana Kernodal received a DoorDash delivery. At 4.12, the affidavit says records show Zana was likely logged on to her TikTok account. The detective also wrote that Koberger's phone was not accessing cell towers for a two-hour time period that morning when the homicides would have been committed. Koberger's defense attorneys have responded to prosecutors' demand that he tell them if he plans to use an alibi at trial. They write that the defense team is still investigating and preparing his case. Evidence corroborating Mr. Koberger being at a location other than the King Road address will be disclosed pursuant to discovery and evidentiary rules as well as statutory requirements. It is anticipated this evidence may be offered by way of cross-examination of witnesses produced by the state as well as calling expert witnesses. Joining me to discuss this latest development in Brian Koberger's case is Fred Perry. He is a high-profile criminal defense attorney from Philadelphia. He has represented rappers in serious criminal matters, and he's here back with us. Welcome back to Sidebar, Fred. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's talk about the filing from the defense. When you read it, it's very brief, um, less than two pages. They're basically saying we're reserving the right to provide an alibi at a later date. Maybe, maybe we'll do it. Maybe we won't, uh, but we'll cross-examine witnesses and maybe it'll come out that way. What is your read on that? Well, let, let me start by saying that the, the presentation of an alibi defense from a defense a criminal defense attorney standpoint is extremely difficult. Um, one, once you start the process of trying to have to prove something, um, the burden kind of shifts because in a criminal trial, a defendant is presumed to be innocent and has no burden of proof. It's the government has to, you know, prove their case. Once you start trying to prove an alibi, you better be able to prove that your client uh, was in a spaceship uh, circling Mars at the time of the incident. Um, otherwise, the government's going to punch a lot of holes in your case. It's it's a very, very difficult process. And from what I've seen in, in these filings, it's clear to me that they simply don't have an alibi, but they're complying with the rules of criminal procedure uh, for that jurisdiction. And they're saying, hey, listen, at this point, um, we don't have anything. But during the course of our trial, if we cross-examine someone and that person happens to say, well, you know, maybe it wasn't uh, the defendant. Um, he was, in fact, on Mars, you know, just landed on on a Mars uh, mission. Um, then the judge is going to say, "Okay, we'll, we'll we'll let that come in out of an abundance of caution." But I I don't think they have anything. And when you add, very interesting, folks. Uh, and, and this attorney, uh, one of the things that he said that um, it's almost like flipping the script. The defense trying to claim this now they're trying to prove something 
and they don't have to prove anything. Again, as he said, their client is innocent to proven guilty. So why would they do that? And one of the reasons could be is that uh, this is a Hail Mary pass. Let's, I don't know if you guys know football. That's when you throw an extremely long pass to the end zone with hoping that someone will catch it. And that's perhaps what this is, a Hail Mary pass, because perhaps they don't have anything else. They don't have any other strong defense to go for this because it's, again, they, do they have to prove anything? They don't. They don't have to prove this. But they're like flipping the the, the, um, the script and sort of doing uh, what the prosecution what what the prosecution's job is is to uh, I was trying to find something. Oh yeah, okay. There is a there is a defense attorney named uh, Matt Murphy, and I've played this numerous times on the show. And he was a L.A. County uh, homicide prosecutor for 17 years. And one of the things he said early on is that the the evidence against Kohlberger is overwhelming. However, I don't, I mean, I feel there's a lot of evidence. However, I also feel that a good defense can poke holes in some of it. Let's listen to Matt Murphy for a few minutes. Hey, um, Matt, we know that some of the families do want, the victims' families do want the death penalty. These crimes were heinous. But, yeah, they don't blame that. I don't blame them. But how does a prosecutor make this decision? So a prosecutor under these circumstances will weigh the aggravating versus mitigating circumstances. It's essentially um, the same job that a jury will be asked to do. And this case is so overwhelmingly awful, for lack of a better term. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure within the DA's office to actually seek the death penalty on that. And the evidence seems to be very strong. I mean, it's not circumstantial. There's hard, there's DNA evidence, there's cell phone evidence, there's... And there's a lot of evidence here. The evidence against Brian Koberger is overwhelming, and that actually is a factor in that decision. Essentially, did you hear that, folks? I, I'd like to play it again. I'm going to just play it again because I've never heard any other former attorney or prosecutor ever say this. Is a factor in that decision. Essentially, when people weigh the death penalty, elected the against Brian this. Koberger is overwhelming, and that so the evidence against Brian Koberger, and I'll play it again is overwhelming and there's a lot of evidence here the evidence against brian koberger is overwhelming and that actually is a factor in that decision essentially when people weigh the death penalty elected da's they look for two things they look for overwhelming evidence absolutely no doubt of guilt because the jury will be allowed to consider that in the penalty phase and remember this is a bifurcated system so first there's the guilt the guilt trial and mm -hmm. then there's the penalty trial they are allowed to consider what's called lingering doubt. So if you have a case where there's there's some wiggle room or a juror might not be sure, they're allowed to consider that in imposing the death penalty. The second thing that every elected DA will consider in making a decision like this is the shocking nature of the crimes. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of cases that are eligible for the death penalty in the United States, the elected DAs don't actually seek it. In Orange County, we sought it in less than 4%. So it is- Wow, why so seldom? Well, for one thing, um, you wanna be absolutely sure as a prosecutor because you have to take the death penalty very seriously, even in a state like California where it's essentially symbolic. It's a, it's a big deal to, to do it. Mm -hmm. It's also a lot more work and it takes a lot longer. And then it faces much harsher appellate scrutiny um, once the conviction and the sentence is imposed. It also affects how you pick a jury. 
Uh, it absolutely does. Now, uh, what's interesting about this is that you're entitled to a what's called a death-qualified jury. Mm -hmm. So they'll bring in the veneer or the jurors for the trial, and they'll all fill out questionnaires, and they will be asked about their views on the death penalty. And if they cannot follow Idaho law, which allows for the death penalty, they will be excluded for what's known as cause. So they won't actually be in, in the jury panel, or they shouldn't be. So you've been in this position before as a prosecutor, a homicide prosecutor. What do you think he's going to do? I... I I think this one, it's pretty clear. He, it, my guess is he's seeking the death penalty. Now, behind the scenes, what's happening is he's probably meeting with the defense and saying, show me what you got to try to talk me out of it. In California, we call that a livesy hearing. In Idaho, I don't know what they call it, but I'm sure they're going through that process right yeah. now. Thank you for watching. So interesting, folks. That's the first time I ever heard a prosecutor, an attorney anywhere, in any case, say that this evidence in this case is overwhelming. And again, I think you have to be careful when you say something like that, because people are just expecting uh, Brian Koberger to be found guilty. However, if you've been in the criminal justice business, you've been in this field, you know that you can never, ever trust or understand what a jury is going to do, how they're going to vote. Juries are very fickle, you know, so you never know. Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in the New York City metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe Murray is a retired member of the service, a retired NYPD police officer, and a fantastic defense attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell phone at 718-514-3855. Email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. Or go on his website, jmurray-law.com. Besides being a fabulous attorney, Joe Murray is a huge, huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast. You know, folks, I want to thank everyone for, uh, for tuning in today. Um, again, uh, we always mentioned uh, the victims in this case, and I think that's, that's who this is about, and that's who we care about most. And it's, of course... Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zaina Canodal, and Madison Mogan. And when you think of the ages of these kids and kids, you know, if you're a parent, you always think of your own kids, no matter how old they get, as kids. And these truly are kids. And Ethan Chapin, of course, is a, uh, a triplet. He has a sister and a brother. And I just can't even imagine the grief that they're going through. And it just is uh, almost too hard to understand. Kaylee Gonsalves, her parents, of course, Steve Gonsalves and Christy were just on 48 hours the other night. And uh, you can see the pain in both of their faces as, as they discuss this case. In addition, Zaina Canodal's dad and her sister was on 48 hours. Madison Mogan, again, we best friends with uh, Kaylee Gonsalves. And as human beings, we appreciate all of this stuff as, and the grief and the, and the sadness. And when we get away from the uh, what this case is about, and uh, we realize and we should never forget the human beings behind this case, the humans and, and the folks that were left behind. And that's what we really care. So, folks, again, thank you so much for tuning in. This is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, 
Bill Cannon. Have a great day, everyone, and God bless. One episode, just ain't enough.